hot flashes, vaginal dryness, painful sex, low libido, recurrent urinary tract infections, weight gain, insomnia, orgasm? What orgasm? Menopause is a very special time, and I'm betting you've not gotten a lot of information from your own doctor. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, a clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology, the medical director of the Northwestern Medicine Center for Sexual Medicine and Menopause, a practicing gynecologist, best-selling author, and a nationally recognized menopause expert. My mantra has always been, if women are given good information, they'll make good choices. And I'm here to give you the inside information on all things menopause. I'm a member of the Kinsey Institute Advisory Board, and while attending a recent board event, I had the pleasure of meeting the inimitable, the amazing, the wildly entertaining Dr. Wednesday Martin. Dr. Martin is a social scientist, an anthropologist, and a New York Times bestselling author of many books, including Primates of Park Avenue and her newest groundbreaking book, Untrue, why nearly everything we believe about women, lust, and adultery is wrong, and how the new science can set us free. Welcome, Dr. Martin. Thank you, Dr. Stryker. You can call me Wednesday. And you can call me Lauren. And I have to say, I was as impressed and entertained and informed uh, when I met you. It was just a complete godshot, as we call it in NAA to uh, meet you at that Kinsey Institute event. Well, it was delightful. Well, same for me. And, and that's quite frankly, the, the kick I get out of being on boards like that, because it brings people into my world, my, my doctor sciencey world that normally I would not have the opportunity to, to spend time with. So it really was a, a wonderful, wonderful event. All right. Let's start with this. You describe Untrue as a book that, quote, cuts through the junk science and regressive cultural narratives that have shaped our beliefs about female infidelity for centuries, revealing a truth both liberating and disconcerting. Women are no more naturally monogamous than men, nor are their libidos shrinking violets. There's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> There's a lot to unpack there. Um, and yeah, I, I stand by that description of my book. And I would also further describe it, Lauren, as a Valentine to women like you. I mean, if I had met you, you would definitely uh, be in Untrue. You'll be in my next book. But it's really a love letter in a way to the scientists, most of them women across disciplines, whether it's anthropology, primatology, sociology, medicine, literary criticism, even um, these women who have moved the science and the thinking about female sexuality forward. And a lot of times it's been about the science of sexual selection, which kind of goes hand in hand with natural selection and feminist primatologists and evolutionary biologists and anthropologists have been hammering away at very regressive ideas about sexual selection for 50 years. It's just that nobody has crossed it over into the mainstream. So my mission in life really is I'm an intersectional feminist storyteller and social scientist. I have a background in evolutionary biology and primatology and anthropology. And I live to cross relevant data over to lay people, especially women, uh, to help them understand why they do what they do, why they want what they want, why they feel what they feel. And for the last six years, I've been focused on crossing over data to help women feel less weird about themselves sexually. And, you know, and it's so important because we have been fed 
a lot of disinformation, if you will, particularly yes. about the science of female sexuality. And, yes. and you know, you, you state quite clearly multiple times that the science of female sexuality is misrepresented, it's misunderstood, and, and usually wrong. And, and one of the things that I, that I know we agree on is there's this enormous disparity when it comes to male sexual health research and female sexual health research. Yes. And, and one of the big problems, other than the lack of research, there isn't a whole lot, is that the research that there is the wrong metrics are used to measure female sexual response. So can you talk about that a little bit and maybe yeah, give us an example? Yes, absolutely. And let's back up a little bit even more from that to the larger context, which is, you know, after what I call the great forgetting, uh, before what I call the great correction, which is what these women scientists did, I feel there, that there has been a, something I call the great correction in the last 40 years or so. Um, but what happened before that is we knew all about the clitoris. Um, we knew a lot about it thanks to a um, medieval midwife who was English named Jane Sharp. And she said, uh, she said the most charming, smart things about the clitoris, it doth rise and fall like the penis and it doth make women, you know, enthused to, to copulate. Basically something like that. I'm paraphrasing this medieval English midwife. Um, but and after that, during the Renaissance period, uh, we had people, mostly men, mapping uh, the, the vast internal clitoris. And then we had this thing uh, that I refer to as the great forgetting. And the clitoris sort of went underground um, and we didn't know about it. Um, in some uh, anatomical representations of the female body, the clitoris was removed entirely. Mm -hmm. It was almost like a cultural clitoridectomy. And um, in recently, most recently, um, we have had three-dimensional imaging of the entire internal human female clitoris, but it's shockingly recent. Uh, so I want to place all my remarks today in the context of the very real fact that we basically mapped the entire human genome before we pushed out into common knowledge and into medical schools, um, the fact of the female erectile network, the fact of the human female clitoris, what it is and how it works. So when I say that a lot of the science uh, is incorrect, it's all building on fundamental misunderstandings like this. I was taught that my clitoris was this little thing with the clitoral hood and that that was that. And that was untrue, right? So now let's go on. And in the context of how little we know about the most basic thing about female sexual anatomy, let's talk about how that kind of ignorance. Uh, I'm sorry, my cats are running around in the background. I have, uh, I refer to them as wild pussies. And that is what they are. There's never enough uh, pussy. Yeah, it's, it's appropriate that I have wild pussies running around. So let's talk about how we measure female desire. Um, and let's talk about in the context, just understanding that foundational ignorance that we're coming from that until recently during the great correction, uh, we got the good information about. We also uh, built uh, our presumptions about female sexuality on some things that Darwin said, uh, you know, throughout the 19th, the mid to later 19th century. And one of them was this assertion based, he said, on his field observations that females of most species, he 
basically believe females of all species all were coy and reticent when it came to sex and that males were pugnacious um, and courageous and horny. Of course. Okay, so we do have this idea and I will talk to to medical doctors who have this idea in their heads that men are essentially more sexual, naturally more sexual than women. And so are males of all species. And that we now know is simply bullshit. And we have the science to prove it. Now let's talk about the case of the human female. Let's talk about human women. Until recently, and I'm preaching to the choir when I say this to you, Lauren, but until recently, we had very um, unsatisfying, limited and male centric metrics for measuring what some people call sex drive. A lot of us call it libido now. Um, And it was this. There was one way to measure desire. We just called it desire. And it was the kind of desire that we now term spontaneous desire where the desire for sex just came over you, almost like you might say, wow, I I really want a cheeseburger, right? Just suddenly, suddenly you want to have sex. And when we look at that metric alone, we see, oh, wow, men's libidos are up here and women's libidos are kind of down here. But thank God for um, observant uh, women scientists and social scientists who brought new forms of compassion and identification and curiosity to their fields. And I think that being yeah. women gave them uh, an upper leg, uh, if that's the way, if that's how we say it, in correcting the science. So Rosemary Bassin. I was going to say Rosemary Bassin. I mean, oh my God, thank God for Rosemary Bassin and her work. Yes. So here she is. I'll say it for your listeners, if not for you. Here she is. And you know this story, Lauren. Correct me if I get anything yeah. wrong. Here she is in Canada doing couples work and individual work, a lot of it about sexuality. And she starts hearing something over and over. She starts hearing that women are reporting strong sexual desire, unmistakable sexual desire. It's just a smidgen different from the way men are reporting it. And she realizes that rather than this straight as an arrow model uh, that Masters and Johnson gave us, where there's, you know, sexual excitement and then, you know, uh, tumescence and detumescence, right? Right. From excitement to orgasm in a straight line. Uh, she realizes that we have to talk about desire in a slightly different way because there's this other kind of desire and she calls it responsive desire. Mm-hmm. So she divides it into spontaneous and responsive desire. And what we see is that if we factor in responsive desire, as well as, wow, the pussies are going crazy in the background. I'm sorry. (laughs) They like this discussion. So if we factor in responsive desire, which men and women alike feel, we see that the male and female libido in humans is more like this. And the exciting thing is that Recently, Meredith Chivers, another Canadian sex researcher. I do not know what is in the water up there. I don't know what's going on in Canada. I know the Canadian research is just so way ahead of what we're doing. So way ahead. And so what Meredith Chivers has developed is an instrument for measuring responsive desire. So we've really come a long way thanks to 
at least two uh, women scientists of sexuality to understanding that there is not this huge discrepancy between men's and women's libidos when they're measured correctly. Now, it's important to say that this idea that men are just naturally more sexual than women and that it pretty much holds for males across species is a sacred cow of sex research. And that when Rosemary Basson made her intervention, there was skepticism. And that when I saw Meredith Chivers at a star conference, either the one in Montreal, I think it was in Montreal, and there was some kerfuffle that she was insisting that when measured correctly, male and female libidos are very matched. And Um, and responsive desire, just, just to be clear for those who aren't familiar with it, is that a woman may not be, quote, in the mood, but then when she starts to have someone who touches her sexually or kisses her, right. then all of a sudden her libido wakes up. And one of the confusing things about responsive desire is people think, well, just because a woman gets touched, is that going to make her you know, want to have sex? No, of course not, because part of responsive desire is actually being open to the person who is initiating that contact. You know, exactly. Non-consensual you sex yeah. is not yeah. part of responsive that desire. That is not part of responsive desire. Thank you for making that yes, really just important to be clear. point. So, so what's interesting when we talk about endpoints is, you know, I look at the trials for these uh, for libido drugs that have gotten through the FDA, uh, bremelanotide and um, flibanserin specifically, and the metric that they use to determine if the drug worked or not. And we can talk about if we should even be using these drugs. But the metric that they used to see if it actually helped women's libido was, did she have a satisfying sexual experience? Like, are you kidding? You know, a woman can have a sky high libido with someone who doesn't know how to elicit an orgasm. So she may not have a good sexual experience, but she has a sky high libido. But that's exactly. what they were using to get FDA approval of these drugs, which is quite frankly, why testosterone probably never made it to the gate. You know, it's a really great point that you're making here. And there's, as you said about the title of my book, there's a lot to unpack in what you just said. First of all, what are we really medicating and are we looking at the right thing, which I'll get into. Second of all, um, how we define sex has a lot to do with whether a woman has a satisfying sexual experience or not. Now, unfortunately for heterosexual women, what happens is we define real sex as penetrative sex. When we know that, thank goodness, you know, for uh, Dr. Debbie Herbin, that's a pretty recent She's amazing. study. Yeah, that only something like 18% of women can have an orgasm from penetration alone. I think now, that sounds high, but. <laughs> I think that sounds high, especially as women age. Um, but, you know, this is, this is a very important point that you're getting to about how we define women's sexual satisfaction. And I love your point about the discrepancy. Women can have a high libido and still not be sexually satisfied. Why? Because of the cultural container that That's defines right. real sex as a thing that is extremely unlikely to get a woman off without something else in the picture, a vibrator, digits, uh, a mouth. Right. Okay, so I have to ask you this question because this has been on my mind since you started talking a few minutes ago. As a biologic and cultural anthropologist, why is the clitoris anatomically placed where it is instead of at the back of the vagina? If the reprodu- if the biologic purpose of sex is to reproduce, then a woman should have an orgasm 100% of the time with vaginal penile penetrative sex. But that's not the case. That's right. She does not. So from a evolutionary 
you know, is it called through on the, tell me, tell me, because I have my own theory of why the clitoris is placed I'll where it is. I'll tell you why. Because the point of sex isn't reproduction. It's to feel good, right? The reproduction is just what happens. Female bonobos who have a richly innervated, forward-facing, exposed clitoris that's larger than ours. Um, Female bonobos have these amazing clitorides. That's the plural that we use in primatology. And you will often see them doing what we call G to G contact, rubbing each other, rubbing up against each other. Grinding is what humans might call it. And why are they doing that? They're doing it because it feels good and because it bonds the female. So for a female bonobo, G-to-G contact with another female because of where her clitoris is. Like ours, it's forward-facing and relatively exposed. Ours are less exposed. That feels incredibly good. That means that females will more often, when they're simultaneously solicited uh, by a male and a female at the same time, a female bonobo will more likely turn to the female. And that's because G-to-G rubbing feels awesome. Of course it does. When you're rubbing a clit, it feels better than the relatively indirect stimulation and maybe the penis will get there and maybe it won't, right? So they're choosing this because it feels good. The secondary effect is that it creates social bonds. The tertiary effect is that socially bonded females then become dominant and bonobos are a female dominant society. Um, If you want to use the term society, they're a female dominant species. Why do I take us down this path? Uh, Because that's my jam. I like to look at the evolutionary biology of what's going on with human females in the context of what's going on with our closest uh, non-human relatives, which is primates, which can tell us a story about our ancestresses, uh, hominins and and pre-hominin females and their sexual strategies. The clitoris is placed where it is so that it maximizes good feelings for women or for clit havers. That's its purpose, to make sex feel really good, which can create social bonds, right? It can create dyadic bonds, which in our evolutionary prehistory, that's much less important. We spent almost all of our evolutionary prehistory in these sort of rangy bands of cooperative breeding um, and uh, having multiple sex partners, we're pretty sure now. Um, And then, you know, reproduction is the thing that happens. A non-human female primate is not walking around being what social scientists and scientists sometimes use the term promiscuous, right? She's not doing that. She's not risking. A female chimp is not risking getting killed by a high ranking male for going around and having sex with a bunch of low ranking males from leaving her group, dispersing from her group, taking the risk and having uh, sex with chimps relatively unknown to her. She's not doing it because she's like, oh, I really want to have a vigorous offspring. Let me find some heterozygosity. She's doing it because it feels good. And that's the point of the clitoris is pleasure. Female pleasure is at the center of the evolutionary story of the human species. And I, and I want to add to that 
a much simpler, my theory of why the clitoris is where it is. And that's so that women, it. so that's why, so women can take care of it themselves. So they are yes. not dependent. Yes. I mean, you talk so about bonding and community, but men, men, of course, you know, it's, it's takes very little effort on their part to figure out how to masturbate and how to have an orgasm and women, the clitoris is placed someplace, which is already a little tricky, but at least once someone gives them a map, then they yes, will know what to do. They know. And let me tell you, uh, through my lens of viewing the world, through the lens of primatology, of bioanthropology, I remember going to the San Diego Zoo, uh, where I met for the first time my very good friend and colleague, Dr. Amy Parrish, who's the world's leading expert on bonobos. At age 26, she told the world that bonobo, what bonobos were all about. She told the world that bonobos um, take care of conflict through sexual strategies rather than violence like chimps. And she told the world, this is a female dominant species. So I went and met her at the San Diego Zoo, where there's a pretty wonderful bonobo uh, enclosure and a group of bonobos. And um, I showed up early and I was waiting for her one day and I noticed this female and she was young. Um, I believe she was three years old um, and she was sitting there right by the window just she had a, a like a long strand of grass in one hand and I'm going to put my screen down so that people can see you'll see that I'm wearing sweatpants <laughs> um, but she had she had I always wear sweatpants so she had this string of grass uh, this long piece of grass in one hand and she had her finger on her clitoris which was large like a large eraser and she was just playing with it and she played with it. I observed her playing with it for five minutes, uh, really enjoying herself. There is a reason not only that the clitoris uh, is where it is, but that it is forward facing and accessible. And that reason is pleasure. And yes, you are so right. I mean, there I see the evolutionary origins of human female masturbation right in front of me. The clit is there. It's pretty accessible and it feels really, really good. It's all the cultural conditioning that makes it hard for us the cultural uh, to, just, to just sit there and dither our clit you know, well, basically in public. And but I not to, to mention say, ed- education, you know, that women yes. don't know their own anatomy, which, you know, yes. that's a whole let other me, topic. Say, yeah, exactly. That's so important. Let me just make a brief point about enculturation. Uh, Gorillas are really easy to find at the San Diego Zoo, but to find the bonobo enclosure is very complicated. You have to like take all these twists and turn and they're hidden away. And why are they hidden? Because the children might see them. They're super sexual and they resolve all their conflict through sex. They have sex all the time. Uh, You know, juveniles having sex with their older sisters, all kinds of things. And uh, I when I was observing the bonobos, I heard people turn their kids away in their strollers and walk away in disgust. And it's that. But that's the enculturation piece. We're not even letting and we're not even letting ourselves watch animals have sex. We've told ourselves that it's mortifying. So bonobos are definitely rated X compared to gorillas. So the gorillas are there out front and center. I know where I'm going the next time I go to see. That's a a bit to me. That's a very powerful anecdote about um, about. The co- about the power of a cultural container to That's keep right. us ignorant or to set us free. So, so while we're on the topic of the the orgasm gap, if you will, yes. um, you know, and obviously we are living in a society where we prioritize male sexual pleasure in animals and humans. But from the viewpoint of a social scientist, well, how has female pleasure become such a low priority? 
<laughs> I mean, I know that so you could write a you, probably, you are writing a book on that. But. I literally wrote a book about it. Yeah. Okay. I love this question. It's so important. It really gets to the heart of it. And I love that about your mind, Lauren. Let me say, as an anthropologist, cultural context is so, so important. We say ecology now, but it also means your cultural container um, and like literally the landscape around you. But uh, let's use the term ecology. Female sexuality tends to flourish in ecologies of parody. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. In contexts uh, where women have low rates of meaningful labor force participation, I don't mean women have rates of labor force participation working as uh, maids, as uh, beauticians, um, and, and sort of lower wage uh, jobs. I mean, when I say meaningful rates of meaningful labor force participation, what I mean and what social scientists mean is at the top, top earners. Okay. So mm-hmm. if you are in a context where women have low rates of meaningful labor force participation, and you're in a context where women have low rates of meaningful, um, meaningful political participation, Okay, and I'm not talking about I'm just going to say it. I'm not talking about even being a congressperson. I'm talking about being the fucking president of the United States. Okay, In those contexts where you have low rates of meaningful labor force participation, sorry, and low rates of meaningful political participation, what you see is that the status of women is low and that female pleasure is a low priority and that male pleasure is a high priority. Where do you think the United States ranks out of 100 countries ranked from women's meaningful labor force and meaningful uh, political participation? Low, very low. Not even in the top half the last time I looked. We rank lower than when recently I checked the data, we ranked lower than Rwanda, Burundi. This is so sad. Cuba, right? So when people tell you the U.S. is a great place to be a woman, don't complain. Look at the data and the data tell us that we now we have statistically verifiable metrics of what patriarchy is. It's when you live patrilocally. Okay, we live neolocally now. We get married and we move off with our spouse. But we used to live patrilocally, uh, you know, in recent history. We tended to be closer to our husband's families. We tended to disperse from our natal group and go to our husband's group. In our evolutionary prehistory, fuck that. We didn't do that at all. But since agriculture, we started to live mostly patrilocally. Now we're neolocal. Okay, but we have a deep background as, patri- as a patrilocal patrilocal residency for women. We also have a long tradition of patrilineal descent and inheritance. What, where do we see the traces of this? Women still taking their husband's last names is a really good clue that we live in an overwhelmingly, until recently, patrilocal, patrilocal patrilineal um, cultural setting. Now, that is why it makes sense that we have low rates of labor and uh, political participation for women. Now, when women have low status, 
The last thing we care about is female sexuality. I always say you porn or Pornhub, you see the porn that you see on there because of how we live on the ground, because we don't have a female president and have never had, uh, because uh, we um, don't have Fortune 100 CEOs who are women, um, because we keep women in pink collar jobs, because there is a wage gap. That's why porn fetishizes the cum shot, the man coming. He even pulls his penis out, right, and ejaculates. We fetishize male ejaculation in our porn in the same way that we fetishize male sexual pleasure and male sexual privilege in our culture because men have higher rates of labor force and political participation. And until recently, it was all patrilineal and patrilocal, and they had all the power. So porn is a great way to see where all the powers and we see recent reconsolidation of this power and privilege in what is happening uh, with Roe v. Wade. Right. Where we're going backwards. And we even when you talk about even just taking or keeping your name as opposed to taking your husband's name, I do have my maiden name. I kept it. Um, And but I'm surprised at the number of young women who are Mm -hmm. not and I think we've gone backwards because at the time when I was getting married, it was not unusual, particularly for a professional woman to mm-hmm. keep her name. I mean, I worked real hard in medical school and residency and and I married a physician and there was it never occurred to me to take right. his name. My yeah. mother-in-law was not happy, I'll just say. And she actually only called me by his name, you know, Mrs. So-and-so. And it's like, really? <laughs> you know, but that's what we're going back. We're going back. It, 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 yes. And it's about possession. Now, it's about possession. That's exactly it. And property. Female sexuality has basically become it's in a chastity belt uh, of its cultural container, which right now is a cultural container where men rule. And you can say whatever you want to say. I'll go back to those statistics about where we rank worldwide. But okay, so this is a perfect segue to how I want to switch gears a little bit, because you make the case that from an anthropological approach, women are not biologically programmed to have one partner, that the expectation and social norm of monogamy is not biologically set, but it's a result of culture, a patriarchal society. And I'm suspecting little ownership in there, too. A lot of, a lot so, of, yeah, a lot is going on with this idea that women are the property of men. That is a very recent idea. I mean, that idea is only 12,000 years old. So I want to say a couple things only. Yeah. To be clear. And that's the blip of an eye for an anthropologist. I mean, I know it's a long time, um, but to be very clear, our evolutionary legacy, uh, and this is not a controversial position in anthropology anymore, is parody. Um, You know, we spent something like 99% of our evolutionary prehistory in hunter-gatherer sort of rangy uh, communities uh, where women supplied sometimes up to 80% of the daily ca- uh, calories, um, where women lived among their kin, um, and where we were, uh, you know, for a big part of evolutionary prehistory, we were cooperative breeders. Uh, we had multiple sexual partners and we raised our offspring collectively. A guy would figure, well, I guess that might be my kid. I had sex with her. Like, I might as well help. Right. And plus, these women had helpers at the nest. They lived among their 
uh, aunts and sisters and mothers and grandmothers. That is the way we used to do it. And that made things more equal. So for 90, about 99% of our evolutionary prehistory, which is to say our history, uh, the rule was that women and men were pretty much equal. And I get into that in greater detail and on true and people can read about that. But that's the big picture to know, first of all. Now, the second thing to know is that the view from my disciplines is that nobody is really biologically wired to be any one way sexually. Here's the deal from my point of view. Uh, informed by my disciplines, which is that human beings, including uh, the human female, evolved as extremely flexible, facultative, uh, sexual and social strategists. What does that mean? It means that we evolved to be able to thrive in a bunch of different containers depending on our ecology. I like to say that female human female sexuality happens at the confluence of the clitoris and the culture. Right. So there's not one by we're not genetically, you know, programmed to be monogamous or not monogamous. We simply are not. We if if anything, our legacy is tremendous flexibility. So that's why you can see in some areas of China and Tibet, uh, you can see uh, polyandry, which is a woman having multiple husbands. Uh, You can see among the Ma people that women don't have. Husbands, uh, they raise their children with their mothers and their brothers, and men just come to visit through the window at night and have sex with the women, and then the women kick them out. And if the man wants to be a father, he has to basically petition the family and say, can I act as this baby's fathers? Um, So we can see women thriving in that container. We can see women doing okay uh, sometimes with polygyny, which is a situation where a man has multiple partners. Uh, We can see women in Brooklyn doing great sometimes with polyamory. Uh, We can see women who are making monogamy work for them. We can see all kinds of things. And that's because our evolutionary legacy is to be flexible sexual and social strategists. People are not acknowledging, you know, but but to bring it, bring it back to to present time um, and, and to America. So in your work, is there a time, you know, how long, when does a woman lose interest in sex with a long-term partner. And this is assuming that the sex is still worth having, you know, that there's no pain, that she's mm-hmm. having orgasms, but you do say that, yes, you know, mo- not every woman, because yes. yeah, I'm acknowledging there's a lot, but when does this, that happen? Is it, is it, is it six back. months? Is it a year? Yeah. Is it five years? This, this brings us back to medicating the female libido that we think is too low. Yeah. My suspicion, based on the data that I reviewed extensively for untrue from multiple disciplines, right? I never bring you an insight if it's not medicine backed by primatology, if there's not uh, agreement from multiple disciplines on a a converging on a certain point. So what we know uh, from the sex research data is that in long term cohabiting relationships, female sexual desire Let me talk about this. Male sexual desire, we know from two very well-designed longitudinal studies in Germany. Male desire tends to go like this over a period of 10 to 12. And since this is a podcast and we can't see your finger. Oh, I'm sorry. It's going down. Slowly. Slowly. slowly, Very slowly. Now, 
I think we should have a um, video for this. Well, <laughs> I, I will put this on YouTube also. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> But so for those of you who are listening, now I'm going to do what multiple longitudinal studies have showed us happens to the female libido within years one and four. So I'm starting with my libido at exactly the same place where the male libido started for this 10 to 12 year period. I'm going down to years one and four and boom, my finger is dropping to the sub basement that I don't have in my house because I live in Los Angeles and we don't have basements uh, usually. So we know from data that there is a drop in female desire it is normal. It is a normal part of being a human female that there is this big drop in desire faster than men have it, more dramatically than men have it. We're talking about sex research data based on heterosexuals, unfortunately. But why? Why? Is it boredom? Is it disdain for their Let's partner? Talk about what's, what's happening? Yeah. Let's talk about it. Male desire ebbs. They're like, hey, I'm still getting it from her. That's pretty great. Women, on the other hand, are saying this is not doing it for me. They stop. Why? My belief is that what we have to do after this point to get to the why. And I want to tell you something else. Annika Gunst, a Finnish researcher, uh, did a study, a very well-designed study as well of women, a range of ages, a longitudinal study. And what she discovered is that when women are in cohabiting, long-term sexually exclusive relationships, they their desire drops even when they're having the reporting great orgasms, okay? Mm-hmm. What the hell is going on? This is where it helps to be a comparativist. And you look to primatology and evolutionary biology and you see that there were tremendous benefits in our evolutionary prehistory and for sure among contemporary <laughs> primates, not even primates, tremendous benefits to female promiscuity or to mating multiply. Now, Angus Bateman told us that fruit fly females don't mate multiply. It turned out that he was wrong. Males and female, male and female fruit flies both benefit from mating multiply. And then we had a whole lot of other science showing us that what we might call promiscuity is a very efficacious, beneficial strategy for many he, uh, mammal, female, for the female of many mammal species, including non-human primates, our closest relatives. What can you get when you're promiscuous? Um, and I use Variety that. for one. <laughs> well, yeah. Say you're with one guy. And say he's shooting blanks, say he has a, an issue with sperm motility or just low quality sperm or he's infertile. You're with one male repeatedly. What happens to your reproductive success? Gone in the toilet. Gone. Done. Gone. What happens if you're in a species where there's infanticide, male infanticide of, uh, you know, neonates, right, which is very common in the in the mammal world. And many uh, evolutionary biologists and anthropologists believe was probably uh, a thing that was happening in our evolutionary prehistory. Uh, What happens if you're only having sex with one guy and there are all these infanticidal males? 
If you have sex with many guys, they're going to say that might be my offspring. Many males, that might be my offspring. Nice. I had sex with her a couple of times. That might be mine. Not only will they not kill your offspring, they'll protect it from marauding infanticidal males. You guys, if you like that idea, read Sarah Hurdy. Okay. <laughs> what about heterozygosity? Tell people what heterozygosity is. You're the doctor. Well, basically, heterozygosity means that you're going to be bring the best of all worlds genetically into the pool. Because you're genetically dissimilar enough from this person that it's going to be a robust pregnancy yeah. and it's going to be a robust offspring. What if you're only with one guy and there's no heterozygosity between the two of Don't you? Don't marry your first cousin. I'm just Holy saying. Hell. <laughs> Holy hell. This guy is either infertile or, you know, he's going to keep you from mating with other guys who will protect your offspring. Or maybe, you know, you're going to have a not robust pregnancy and not robust uh, whatever. Now, on the other hand, there are a lot of benefits to male mammals across species of mate guarding and being monogamous. You hit and run. What's the chance you're going to get a female during her ovulatory period? Very low. Very low. You hit and run as a, as a male mammal. What's your chance that that pregnancy is even going to stick? If you get it right, which you're statistically unlikely to, what's the chance that it'll stick? We know there are high rates of spontaneous abortion. Uh, sorry, uh, God, you know, that's on my mind. Miscarriage, yeah, high yeah. rates of spontaneous uh, miscarriage among across mammal species. Yeah. Uh, what so, you know, so, so what I'm trying to say is if we revisit facts and data, what we see is that monogamy was a pretty great social and sexual strategy for males across a lot of species, whereas Mating multiply was a pretty great strategy for females across many mammal species, including our closest relatives, non-human primates. Why do women get bored in years one to four of a relationship? Because I believe, and many other anthropologists believe, that women evolved a highly, at the time, adaptive appetite for sexual variety, sexual novelty, and sexual adventure. You go to a primate enclosure, and you are going to see primate females getting sexually bored within the first year, two years, three years, the zookeepers know, put in some novel males, the female non-human primates across species, they like, woo, they, they get wake up. Yeah. Women have, human women have an evolved appetite for sexual adventure sexual variety and sexual novelty because it used to be super adaptive for our reproduction and it was an adaptive social strategy. It got us lots of support. So now put women in a cultural container where we fetishize the dyad and we fetishize monogamy and we fetishize living together in isolation and we deploy. We have a problem. Yeah. We have a problem. And now we want to medicate for the problem, right? Oh, there's something wrong. And women will come to me all the time. They're like, I've gone off sex. And I'm like, what if you could have sex with this hottie? Hold up a photo. They're like, oh, well, hell yes. Well, that's, you know, that's so funny because when women say, I don't want to have sex with my husband anymore, my response is, well, how about with your boyfriends? It's like, oh, yeah. Oh, yes. So the libido is not gone. For yeah. a lot of women, and I don't have statistics on this, but based on evolutionary biology and our primate ancestresses, I am going to go out on a limb and say that the vast majority of women who are 
pathologizing their low libido. Are normal human women being normal human women, women going off sex with the same person over and over and over and over? Because until very recently, that was an extremely maladaptive strategy. Get women variety and novelty and adventure before you put them on meds for their supposedly crappy libido. So, all right. So you've established, you've absolutely established that monogamy, you established that monogamy for women is harder for women. I mean, that monogamy is harder for women than it is for men. Um, So in in the aggregate, in the aggregate. So that brings me to not notwithstanding. Do women cheat as often as men? Yes. Okay. Yes. It's so funny. There was a relatively the some of the more recent general social surveys uh, and uh, a great UK survey. um, But, you know, Pamela Druckerman made this point years ago uh, that when you crunch these data, what you see is that the difference in reported rates of uh, men committing, quote, infidelity, unquote, I hate that term, and women reporting it are not far apart. Now, factor something in. Men tend to over-report what they think of as sexual conquests, and women tend to under-report what they consider sources of sexual shame. Right. Yeah. So reputational assault is what happens if you're potentially if you're a woman who admits it, even anonymously, even in an anonymous interview. uh, And men tend to overreport. So if male and female rates of infidelity are basically the same, Dr. Lawrence Stryker, but men tend to overreport and women tend to underreport. What does that mean? It all comes down to shame. It comes down to shame. And women are probably having at least as many undisclosed affairs, if we want to call them that, as men are, because women underreport it, men overreport it, and the rates are pretty much equal in the report, in the self-reporting. So, yes, they do. And if we look at the worldwide ethnographic data, I hate it when people make assertions about sexuality based on the industrialized West, based on white people, based on straight people. Some of it, we have to work with some of the data that we have. But if we look at the worldwide ethnographic data, what we see is that female sexuality will be as ebullient, as, as quote, out of bounds, unquote, as enthused, as selfish, as strong, as insistent as male sexuality. It depends on the ecology. And in Untrue, I talk about a group of semi-nomadic pastoralists in Namibia, um, and the Himba, who have the highest uh, reported rate of extra pair um, uh, pregnancies, right? Women getting pregnant by men who are not their husbands when they're married of any small scale population in the United States. And that is because of the ecology that the Himba live in. Female infidelity is not just tolerated. It's considered a normal thing normal. for a woman normal. who's married to be pregnant by a man who's not her husband. I'm not saying people love it, but it's tolerated and it happens a lot. So on the other hand, contrast that to here, right, where a woman who, quote, cheats, unquote, on her husband might be severely beaten. uh, She might be killed. Right. And then think again, think again when you say that American women are so free to me, the most meaningful metric of gender equality 
is how do we tolerate a woman's sexual autonomy? And in this country, the answer is not well. Mm-hmm. First of all, we're going to coerce her and say she can't have an abortion, it looks like. Uh, which or contraception, the, which is. Or contraception. Yeah. So no more sex for pleasure or recreation. Your sexuality is tethered to your baby production. And if not, you're going to be punished. Right. And second, which I of guess all, it's good news for menopausal women. <laughs> Right. We're going to be the, the population that can have sex without consequences. Yes, we can have sex without consequence, which is something we should talk about. And we can help younger women have access, we hope, to safer abortions. Because yeah. um, right. abortion would- will not go away. Um, it's just will kill women yeah. and be I'm, unsafe. Yeah, yeah, I had a second point to make about. Um, but anyway, we can go on. But I just wanted to make that point about ecology and the cultural wrapper really mattering in terms of infidelity or just being sexually autonomous. To me, infidelity is just the best metric of female sexual autonomy and female female autonomy in general. You know, you will hear a lot of people agree with the following statement. Yes, women should absolutely earn 100 cents on the do- on the dollar. Yes, a woman should be able to be president of the United States. I mean, apparently, as long as she's not Hillary Clinton. Right. But people will agree to those statements. But then you say, oh, this woman is married, but she's in an open marriage and she's having sex with her girlfriend or she's having sex with another man on the DL. And the same people who agree with those previous statements about gender parity will say will say things like, what a slut. Yeah, Ew, exactly. that's wrong. What's wrong? Or they will just say, well, obviously, you know, she's got some emotional some problems. problems. You know, one of the things that struck me when I was reading Untrue is that you you're a storyteller, of course, and you interviewed women who were having relationships outside the marriage and this relief this relief that they expressed that they were not the only ones doing it, that they weren't some kind of deviant for desiring sex outside the marriage was it was just so validating. And I think for so many women who read it, they will just breathe a, a sigh of relief. But all right, I want to I want to kind of switch a little bit because yeah. I do want to talk about we've been talking about women who cheat, but there is now um, or women who openly say no to monogamy, too. Or who open, and that's what I want to talk about. So when we talk about consensual, consensual non-monogamy. One of the things I learned in this Kinsey getaway, uh, a statistic that I did not know, but of course you are very familiar with, is that there is good data to support the fact that one out of five couples practice consensual non-monogamy. News to me. Talk about that a little bit. Okay, let's talk about this. It's fantastic. First of all, I do not use the term consensual non-monogamy, and I do not use the term ethical non-monogamy. And I've been talking to Amy Moores, um, who's, um, I think she's the Who presented the paper at Kinsey. Yeah, and I just love her work. And Amy Moores and uh, Dr. Victoria Hartman and I have been talking about changing the language. I'm just going to make this point. It's important, and then I'll get to the larger point. You know, a lot of times people in openly non-monogamous relationships report that a lot of women are thriving in those relationships, by the way, and a lot of women initiate them. But there are people, men and women alike, or people who identify as neither, who report, you know, I don't really agree with this non-monogamy thing that my partner wants. I'm just doing it because they want it. So we're thinking, rethinking this idea of calling it consensual. I want to ask you something about that before you go on. When you say I'm doing it because they want it, meaning that they are agreeing to have their partner go out there or that they themselves are also 
non-monogamous. Yeah, there can be discrepancy in non openly non-monogamous couples about how much somebody wants it. And enough people have reported that it's more like a strategy to maintain their mate or their partner uh, that we're rethinking. Is that enthusiastic consent when you're like, I'm not really that into it. Okay. So yeah. that's kind of a side point, but it's very, very important that a lot of us want to stop using the term consensual non-monogamy because it's not exactly enthusiastic consent in what is coming to seem like a fair number of situations. Second point, I don't use the term ethical non-monogamy and I so appreciate that you didn't. Uh, because I don't think that uh, like a guy, a white guy living in Brooklyn who identifies as polyamorous and lives in an intentionally sex positive community. I don't think he's any more ethical than a woman uh, who is in an unsatisfying, say, abusive partnership with a man and does not disclose uh, her extra marital or extra um, pair sexual um, adventures or uh, experiences because she's using them as a way to bridge to another mate or safe situation for herself and her child. Okay. So background, let's stop using the terms consensual non-monogamy. Let's stop using the term ethical non-monogamy. Let's just call it monogamy, open monogamy, whatever. Open non-monogamy is something we can use, or we could just say monogamy and non-monogamy. Okay. About consensual non-monogamy. One of the things that we uh, about an open non-monogamy, one of the things that we're seeing that's surprising is that uh, a large number of women, when you talk to experts who see these people and work with couples or throuples or quads or dyads wanting to do it, uh, what what experts like David Lay reported to me uh, and many other experts was that, look, anecdotally, it's just so clear to us that monogamy is a tighter shoe for women in the aggregate. There are exceptions. Like I said, flexible sexual social strategists, we can thrive in a lot of different containers. There's no one right relationship container. But they're telling me, look, anecdotally, what I see is that monogamy is a tighter shoe for women in the aggregate. And a lot of times it will be a man because of the cultural container who feels freer to suggest non-monogamy but if he tries to then shut it down, what so many of these experts report is it's the woman who says, oh, no. And David Lay refers to this as he let the genie out of the bottle. She's probably not going to go back. Why? Because she has a deeply evolved appetite. Not every single woman, but in the aggregate, our evolutionary prehistory, the software is in there for us to have a highly evolved appetite for sexual adventure, variety and novelty and new partners. And so I always say before you medicate women for their low libido, is it a low libido just for their long term cohabiting partner? Could you do things like have them have separate bedrooms? or at least separate bathrooms? Could they live apart? Is that possible? Let's try all these things. Let's try anything that gets her sexual variety and novelty and sexual adventure, because there's a very good chance that a woman with a low libido, that's a problem for her in her dyad, there's a very good chance that if you give her what she evolved to want and need, you're going to have a solution before you medicate her. So you, you know my solution. Why are we pathologizing and medicating 
normal human women for being normal human women is my question. Let's dig into how often we're medicating women who simply need variety and novelty and adventure because it was an adaptive sexual strategy for a long, long time. Sorry if I took us in a little cul-de-sac. I tell women what they need is HRT, husband replacement therapy. (laughs) (laughs) And And we're so used to telling men that they need WRT, wife replacement therapy. Wife replacement therapy. And it blows people's mind when you flip the script based on data from multiple disciplines. So so you made the case that, you know, being non-monogamous is good for women, good for couples. How's it working out, Many though? Women, when you look, when you look at these, not all, not all, but for certain people that they do embrace this. So if you look at the couples that say this is working for us, we are embracing this. Do we have any data on how this goes long term? Do these relationships last? Now, let's Does talk about the new normal let's for some couples. Oh, thank you for reminding me. Uh, my point, and I did have one, was to address that statistic that is a Kinsey, uh, that Amy Moore's, uh, I believe it was Amy Moore's, Justin Garcia, and my colleague and wonderful friend, Dr. Helen Fisher, crunched census data. And they came up with this statistic that in one group, one in five people reported that they had at some point been in an openly non-monogamous arrangement that it was over. It was slightly over 20 percent of people. Now, let's remember that people underreport socially stigmatized behaviors. So I'm going to say that the number is very likely higher um, of and that was of single Americans. Right. Uh, But single Americans later partner. Right. So that was currently single Americans. More than one in five reported uh, that they had at some point been in a non-monogamous, openly non-monogamous relationship. And that means since we underreport this stuff, that the number is higher. Okay, what else can we look at? Let's look at internet uh, data searches, as Amy Morris did, and we find out that over the last, uh, you know, half decade to decade, there has been an exponential rise in the number of searches for terms like consensual non-monogamy, non-monogamy, ethical non-monogamy. I wish we would just call it disclosed non-monogamy or undisclosed non-monogamy. But anyway, that's my uh, little uh, point there. So we know, I like to say that Americans on the face of it were committed to monogamy, uh, but we're very curious about our options, right? Extremely. That's the least little bit we can say. Okay, what do we know about couples who take the plunge and decide, let's go for it? Well, thankfully, we have a lot of data uh, from Amy Moore's mentor, um, um, Helen Connolly. And um, she is a sex researcher. She spent some time at the University of Michigan. I'm not sure of her uh, academic affiliation right now. But Terry Connolly did long longitude. She did long, some longitudinal studies of people who reported that they were in openly non-monogamous arrangements. And what she found was that those couples reported lower levels of jealousy and more high quality communication. It's fascinating. Uh, Yes. So now it's a chicken egg thing. Do less jealous people just tend to 
uh, be in these arrangements or just being in this arrangement. And you have to be a super good communicator with your partner to be in a successful non-monogamous relationship, right? So there's a chicken egg question, but uh, she and other researchers have found something else, which is that people in openly non-monogamous relationships tend to report higher levels of sexual satisfaction. Mm. So let's look, let's say it this way. But, Lauren, but Wednesday, let me ask you this before you go on. Yeah. How long did she follow these couples? That's my question. There's a big difference between we followed these couples for a year versus three, four, five, six years. Yeah, there are longitudinal studies of, I would say, at least five years or 10 years. Um, We do not have 50 year longitudinal studies, unfortunately, because we stigmatize the hell out of it. It's like what we did with homosexuality, although it's not a perfect analogy. Right. Nobody's going to come out of the closet uh, if there are going to be so many personal and professional repercussions. So we didn't even study it or talk about it. But look, let's be very clear. There are different varieties of non-monogamy, and they have been around for a long time. If people want to read about that, there's an historian of open non-monogamy. Her name is Helen Schaff, uh, Elizabeth Schaff, excuse me, that's Elizabeth with an S. She's a wonderful researcher, and she writes about how we're currently in the third wave of open non-monogamy. She talks about how the first wave was like sort of early hippies, like romantic poets and transcendentalists. And there were, you know, communes uh, where they lived and they basically acted like our hunter-gatherer ancestors. Uh, They lived in sort of cooperatively breeding situations, basically, where they had multiple partners. They raised their kids together in these uh, very imperfect, it's important to say, kind of sometimes kind of culty situations. But it's been with us since the romantic poets and since transcendentalism. It's a deep part, not just of our evolutionary prehistory, but of our history as Americans. Non-monogamy is very deeply woven into the fact of Americanness. So you start with the romantic and transcendentalist poets. Then you go to the second wave of open non-monogamy, which Elizabeth Sheff says is sort of the hippie era, like the Woodstock era. And I'm not sure how well women did with that. You know, women who were groupies, women who were still under the thumb of men in a lot of ways, women who ended up being like house mothers in these non-monogamous relationships that really highly benefited men. And then we're in the third wave of open non-monogamy now, which is basically that it's coming out of the closet a little bit, that in the context of sex positivity, um, which is a big movement in social media and that ecology, I think social media really helped move open non-monogamy's third wave into the mainstream. So we'll see what the fourth wave of non-monogamy is. We'll see what longitudinal data we have now that we have destigmatized it a bit. It's really important to say, Lauren, and I know you know this, so I'm preaching to the choir, but it's really important to say that, you know, open non-monogamy is often in the United States, the ultimate form of privilege, you know, you see it happening. It's safest for women who have, who are resource rich. That means they either have their own money or they have intense kin support so that if a guy tries to beat them up for it or if a female or partner or, or, or a female partner is pissed off about it, they have options. Yeah, well, I, I don't feel like being monogamous. And if you don't like it, I'm going to go live with my mom and she's going to help me raise my kids. Or I don't feel like being non-monogamous. I have all this money. I'm going to go to my house in London now and like find a girlfriend or a boyfriend there. Right. So 
unfortunately, even though the, our deep evolutionary legacy, our recent American history, our non-monogamy has been a deep part of our experience, it's still often only privileged people who can get away with it. So I think that's a really important that point. That is so important. And, and I know you're not a therapist, but I just no. think I'll throw this out at you anyway. You know, if there's a woman who is listening, who's intrigued by this concept of uh, non-monogamy, how do you bring that up to your spouse or in a long-term relationship? Question number one, is it physically safe for you? Yeah. Are you going to be browbeaten, actually beaten, maybe killed for saying this? Because we live in an ecology where those are very real consequences for women who dare to ask for sexual autonomy and who dare to pursue it openly. Are you going to be made fun of at your church? Are you going to be slut shamed at the PTA meeting? These are all very real coercive tactics. So I would urge women first, is it safe? Second of all, to get back to the longitudinal data, what we see is that people do better with this. Uh, what, What researchers have found is that the people who do best with open non-monogamy are swingers and polyamorous people. Whereas people who have a don't ask, don't tell policy or who are in open marriages, uh, but don't talk about it a lot and keep it private tend to do worse. Why? Because poly people and swingers are deeply embedded in communities, whatever we think of swingers. And I happen to love them. They were my favorite uh, interviews. Uh, whatever we you think have of, to read this book, everyone. Uh, whatever, has to read yeah, this. whatever you think of their life, swingers are super fun people. They just yeah. like to have really open personalities and be very inviting and so on. But anyway, they are deeply part of a community. They have this dyad. They privilege each other. They have these sexual adventures, either alone or apart. But they like they go on cruises. They have conferences. They hang out together. They have big swinger parties. They're part of a community. They don't feel alone. Polyamorous people, you know, they get together. They have book groups. There's a group called Open Love New York. They have cocktail parties. They feel, um, you know, they read the same texts. They read Sex at Dawn. They read my book. Uh, they read The Ethical Slut. And they have a deliberate community. People who are just in an open relationship and keeping it a secret, they feel isolated and stigmatized. So this is a very important point. And they report lower levels of satisfaction and happiness. Here's my other point to women. Is it safe? And find a community. Find other women who are doing this. If you're just going to be open and be secretive about it, find other women who are doing this. And you can do that by going to an organization like Open Love, um, you know, and there are resources in my book on true. Find a community so that not only are you safe, but you're in good company. How do you bring it up to your partner if you determine that it's safe? Blame it on me triangulate blame it on me and lauren striker just say would you do you know honey that i was listening to this podcast today and this out there anthropologist dr wednesday martin was talking about open non-monogamy what do you think about that blame triangulate It's so funny because I always tell people if they want to bring up something that perhaps they read in one of my books or you like using vibrators as an example. A lot of women for a lot of reasons are reluctant to bring up to their male partner that they want to incorporate a vibrator into having sex. And I say the exact same thing. Blame it on me. My doctor prescribed it. I was reading this book 
And in the I book, heard this I podcast. heard that, you know, men, oh, no, a lot of men actually book. like this. And I think we might find this fun too. blame it on me. Blame it. Hold on up me. your phone and show your partner my article, Women, the Board Sex from the Atlantic. Wow. Look at all this data. Look at all these data that are suggesting that like whatever. Or wow. What do you, look, have you heard this term throuple? I heard it on a podcast or like, what do you think about like a threesome? I heard about it. This woman was describing a threesome on this podcast. Right. Blame it on somebody else. So that it doesn't come as a criticism. That is my most important bit of advice. Also be ready for blowback. One last question, because we are running out of time, even though I want to keep talking and talking and talking. Okay. You're an anthropologist. Huh? We, we could talk about this forever. We it's could, sex. We could. Talking about sex. All right. This is going to be a simple question, although they're never simple. But yeah, you're an anthropologist. You study cross-cultural data today. Today, where is the best place in the world to be a woman sexually? Wherever today women rank highest in meaningful labor force and political participation. And I can't tell you exactly what, where that place is today, but I can tell you that it's not the United States. Can we just say Italy? Cause I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's have a conversation. Italy, the next Kinsey meeting. Are, are so beautiful and so focused on pleasure. Let's just say Italy. I want to stop with one last thing. If you will allow me to. Please. And your books help make this point so beautifully. And just your very existence uh, helps make this point beautifully. There is no expiration date on human female sexuality. There is no expiration date on a woman's sexiness. It's only the cultural container that tells us that we're shriveled up and dried up and of no use anymore that contributes to that biologically, there are so many steps to take to get yourself back there. And I want to, I want to end if I can with something that Nisa, um, who is a Kong woman was that this Harvard anthropologist, Marjorie Shostak worked with for many years. And uh, she heard all Nisa's stories about her sexuality and what it was to be a Kung woman for many years. And Marjorie Shostak went back and saw Nisa uh, when Nisa was in her late 50s or mid to late 50s, which for her was like the equivalent of being maybe in your 70s or 80s. And Marjorie Shostak uh, was uh, really surprised to see that Nisa was surrounded by three men. And one man was her peer. And Marjorie Shostak said, "Uh, what about this guy? And uh, Nisa said, oh, yeah, I mean, he's a great, basically, essentially, she said he's a great life partner. You know, we've had similar experiences. Uh, We've had a long history together. I really like talking to him. Uh, He's great company. Second man, uh, a little bit, quite a bit younger than Nisa, you know, at least 30 years younger than Nisa, Um, uh, maybe 25 years younger than Nisa. Maybe this guy was 30, say, and Nisa was 55. And uh, Marjorie Shostak said, "Uh, who's this guy? What's his deal? And Nisa said, oh, he helps me with chores. Um, He is uh, I feel protected by him. And uh, yeah, he helps me out. In, you know, with my life, with whatever load bearing and and heavy things and builds me a fire, gets me firewood. Right. (laughs) Marjorie Shostak says, this guy in his 20s, what's this all about? And he says, oh, yeah, he can go all night long. (laughs) 
Okay. Okay. That's female sexuality too. That is as much female sexuality at age 75, say, as our received cultural notions that you're dead then and just go away. So I just, that's what the cross-cultural data tells me is there are many reasons for hope and positivity and to assert that female sexuality does not have an expiration date. There is no expiration date. And that is such a good place to bring this to an end. I will put lots of information in the program notes so that you will know where to find the books, where you will know how to find Dr. Martin and continue to listen to listen to all this wisdom. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lauren. And thank you so much for your really important work that you do. I appreciate you and your work so much. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and thank you for joining me. You will find lots more information in my inside information books available on amazon.com and follow Francie as she navigates her way through vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and pretty much every menopausal symptom you can think of. See the light.